Uh, Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and Samuel chapter 11. And we'll jump in today. Uh, first question is this. Have you ever been at a memorable crossroads before? Have you ever been at a memorable crossroads before? Um, I can tell you, I'm trying to think of something, because we have all these crossroads that we've been at, but I tried to think of something that was universal for all of us. And I'm telling you, as a kid, do you remember going to the ice cream shop when you were a kid? I mean, that is the crossroads of crossroads. Some of you are old enough to remember when there were only three flavors of ice cream. You remember that? There was, uh, my parents' generation, it was chocolate, vanilla, and something called Neapolitan, which was chocolate and vanilla together with like a strip of, uh, of strawberry that was in there at the same time. You got to pick one of those three. Man, when I was a kid, the big deal was Baskin Robbins 31 flavors, right? And you think about it, 31 flavors, it causes me anxiety to this day. I walk into a Baskin Robbins. I'm so excited for ice cream. I'm fat, and so I'm so excited for ice cream, okay? But I'm telling you, you go in, I don't want to make the wrong decision. And so I remember as a kid, uh, our small town had a Baskin Robbins, and my dad said, hey, when you go in, he said, I'm only paying for one scoop. He said, make sure you do the little taste test where they give you that little purple or pink spoon, right? You get a little taste test so you can see which one you want to actually spend the money on. But sometimes you go in and your eyes get big and you just want that scoop so badly, you don't have time to do the taste test. You just make a decision. Now, I was always a Rocky Road man, all right? I love Rocky Road ice cream. I just think it's delicious. Love, again, just everything involved with it. But when I was a kid, they came out with a new flavor called bubble gum. Do you remember bubble gum ice cream? Now, here's the thing about bubble gum. You either love it or you hate it. Okay, it's real sugary, but the reason you either love it or you hate it is because the premise of bubble gum is it tastes like bubble gum, but they have pieces of bubble gum, these bubble gum balls inside of it. And you think about it, there are a few things less appetizing than trying to bite into a frozen gumball. You know what I mean? Just definitely break a tooth on that thing. So I remember I go one day and my dad says, make sure you get the little spoons, make sure you get the taste test so you pick the right one. And instead, I go in, I see that bubble gum, and I think to myself, this is a brilliant choice because I can not only enjoy my ice cream, but I'll have gum to chew afterwards, right? I mean, that's little kid thinking. So I go, I get the bubble gum ice cream without trying. That first bite is delicious. And then for me, I just didn't like it. I didn't like it. And so the whole rest of the time, I'm looking over there at that rocky road. You know what I mean? I'm just longing for that delicious rocky road on the other side. One time I went in with my granddad. What is the flavor of ice cream that people over the age of 70 always get? Butter pecan is correct. There it is. There's some vanilla, but I'm telling you, butter pecan, that is, I mean, they specialize in that over 70 credit. Have you had it before? It's delicious. But for a kid, it tastes a lot like oatmeal. You know what I mean? Just one of those. And I remember going in and I said to my granddad, what should I get? And granddad goes, well, I personally like the butter pecan. And I thought, man, he's a wise man. I love him. Maybe I should do that. This is oatmeal, right? This is not good. Rocky Road, why did I not just go with you, all right? Now listen to me. You make the decision, and you got to live with it. We're going to talk today through a really rough passage, okay? And it is the story, the opening portion of the story of David and Bathsheba, okay? Last week, 
We talked about how David's problems with women did not start with Bathsheba. His problems with women and his issues in his family and his problems with pride as the main source of struggle started way, way before that. Remember, six sons by six different women in seven and a half years, and he was sleeping with his concubines. I mean, I'm telling you, David, David was in a bit of a mess. And the passage that we're going to read through today is the culmination of David having to choose between wisdom... And what we're going to learn is folly. If you're taking notes, I want us to read together Proverbs chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to get to see. When you're a kid, it's choosing the wrong flavor of ice cream. When you're an adult, there's way bigger problems that we jump into. Okay? Now look at what happens. Here's what it says. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now wisdom has built her house, and she's hewn out seven pillars. It's seven pillars. And has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She sent out her maids and she calls out, look at this, from the highest point in the city. Underline and highlight from the highest point in the city. Let all who are simple come in here. Underline that all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, come, eat my food, drink my wine that I've mixed, leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Now stop right there for just a minute. I want you to notice something. In our modern culture, the word simple has negative connotations. Here in this passage, when she says, if you're simple, come into me, what she's saying is, as wisdom, it is accessible to anyone. Doesn't matter. Uh, your race, doesn't matter how you grew up, it doesn't matter uh, what, uh, what education you have, wisdom is accessible to anybody. And notice this, it says that she has her house on the highest point in the city. Anyone can see wisdom and anyone has access to wisdom. She cries out, come in and eat with me. The idea is to sit and digest truth, digest understanding, and you who are simple will receive what it is that you're looking for. But there's somebody else crying out. Look at verse 13. It says, the woman followed is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house. Look at this on the seat at the highest point of the city. Does that sound familiar? Calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Look at verse 16. Let all who are simple come in here. Does that sound familiar from our last passage? She says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. Now stop right there for just a minute. Notice what the writer does here. Wisdom, at the highest point in the city, visible and yet accessible, cries out, let all who are simple, let all who are lacking come in here and receive sustenance. But folly, folly is similarly visible at the highest point in the city, and her message is exactly the same. All who are simple, come in here. So if they're in the same place and they cry out the same message, how do you know when you're choosing wisdom over folly? You got to look very carefully at that situation. If you're taking notes, write this down. The definition of folly, folly means avoidable mistakes. 
avoidable mistakes. Wisdom is the way of understanding in which we should walk. And folly, folly is a mistake that was very much avoidable. Now I want to caveat it with this statement. Are you ready? It is theologically sound to trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins while seeking to the best of our abilities to limit avoidable mistakes. Let me say that one more time. It is theologically sound to trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins while seeking to the best of our abilities to limit avoidable mistakes. Here's what that means. That means that because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your sin, past, present, and future is covered, whether it's a mistake that was avoidable or whether it was not. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. That is what eternity hinges on. But... At the same time, we are called to limit our avoidable mistakes so that our effectiveness for the gospel can be left intact. These folly decisions that we make have ramifications that cause issues for our families, for our communities, and for us personally. Now, just for the record, before one of you looks and says, man, preacher, I just feel like you're preaching down on me today. Every one of us have gone to the house of folly at one point or another. Every single one of us. What we're going to do today is read David's story in hopes that we can limit those visits to the house of folly as much as possible. These avoidable mistakes so that we don't fall into the same temptation. Now, when you're a kid, it's choosing the right ice cream flavor. When you're an adult, it's going into business with somebody with a bad reputation. One's a good decision and one's folly. It's dating somebody with rotten character just because you don't want to be alone. It's saying something hateful to a family member or someone in your community when you know you will see that person regularly and regret those words. It's spending money you don't have. Debt is always an avoidable mistake. I want to encourage you. Stay out of it as much as possible. So it begs our big million-dollar question today. What should the godly remember so they don't end up in the house of folly? What should the godly remember so they don't end up in the house of the avoidable mistakes? Are you ready? We're going to use David as the example today. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now, if you're a person who's not been to church in a long time, and you're like, man, preacher, I feel like every time I come to church, someone teaches on Bathsheba and David. You just need to know, I've got on this in the history of our church, all right? And so here's the deal. If that's you, the Lord might be trying to say something to you, all right? This is important. For some of you, you're in here today, and the Holy Spirit is going to be a blaring foghorn telling you you, don't go in that house of folly. Stay with wisdom. This is not just for adultery, even though that very much is a theme here. This is for any issue that we could drift into that seeks to wreck and destroy everything that God is doing. Are you ready? Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Circle, underline, and highlight when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ramah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now stop right there for just a minute. A couple of big things that are happening in this passage. First of all, the writer here in 2 Samuel makes sure that you know without question that David should not have been in Jerusalem. 
This was the time when he should have gone out to war. In fact, it was not something to delegate. The Ammonites during this time period, the Ammonites were like the locusts of this day. And the Ammonites in this passage, they were the ones that were the vicious enemy of Israel that wanted to decimate and destroy every ounce of their culture. This was a very, very important set of battles that they were fighting. And David, what starts in him as an as a misunderstanding of relationship with women manifests itself in him fathering six sons by six different women in seven and a half years. It manifests itself in him sleeping with his concubines. And then all of a sudden we get this story in second Samuel chapter 11. The root of all this is pride. Pride gains a foothold in David's life and his relationship with these women. And all of a sudden it begins to grow and grow. If a king can sleep, can marry whoever he wants, if a king can sleep with whoever he wants, then why should a king have to go to battle when he doesn't feel like he has to? And then all of a sudden it erupts into the mess that happens later on in the passage. Pride is the root sin and it takes hold in his life and it begins to try to take over. So what should the godly remember so they don't end up in the house of folly? Number one, choose active righteousness over idleness. Choose active righteousness over idleness. Now, just for the record, there is a huge difference between idleness and rest. They are two very, very different things. There are some of you who are workaholics in, your, in this room that you were just like, yep, preacher, you're exactly right. That's why I don't leave myself any time to do anything wrong. I just work, work, work all the time, no time off at all. No, you got to understand, rest is godly. Idleness, idleness is the devil's playground. You don't know the difference between the two? It's the difference between a parked car and a car being a new. A parked car is at rest. You have taken the car, you have put it into park, and you are letting it rest until you put it in gear again, back it out of the driveway, and you go forward to whatever it is that's your next destination. Neutral is idleness. A car in neutral goes whatever direction the ground slopes. A car in neutral goes whatever direction somebody who's around it pushes it or whatever direction the wind blows if you're from West Texas. Now, I'm not proud of this, but back in the day, um, we had some friends, and uh, one of our buddies when we were in high school got a brand new Jeep Wrangler, okay? Now, here's the deal. If you were the kid that your parents bought you the brand new Jeep Wrangler, you need to know that we all hated you, all right? Okay? And not for good reason other than we were all just so jealous. I mean, I, that's again, they're Jeep people and they're not. I'm definitely a Jeep person. Autumn and I drove a Jeep Cherokee as our first married car together. But man, when we were in high school, I drove this little Mitsubishi Mirage. It was about the size of this podium. This little tiny little car, and uh, it was older model too. Uh, and then we had a buddy who got that brand new red Jeep Wrangler. And I'm telling you, we were all so jealous. Well, to put insult to injury, this guy shows up to school and has, it was a beautiful day, had the soft top, takes the top part off of the Jeep and rolls up there, big sound system too. And I'm just telling you, we were all just so jealous, so green with envy. Well, walks inside and a couple of the guys get together and they go, you know what we should do? We should take the doors off that Jeep. We should take the spare tire off, shift it into neutral, and we should push it into the middle of the parking lot. I'm not proud of that, but we did it. <laughs> and in neutral, we pushed that thing out in the middle, set the doors out in different spots so we had to run and get them. Now, I've repented of that. The Lord has forgiven me, all right? Now, I'm just telling you that story to say this. That's neutral. Neutral is not, I'm in park until I get to move again. I'm resting until I get to move again. 
Neutral is whoever's around can shove me whatever direction they want to shove me. They can influence me however they want to influence, and I am at their whim. Matthew Henry writes it this way. Standing waters gather filth. Let me say that again. Standing waters gather filth. You ever been around still water before? There's a difference between still water and standing water. Still water is when you're around a lake and the weather elements calm and you just see the stillness of that beautiful water, but it's still very life-giving under the surface. Or under the surface. Standing water is nasty. Standing water is no good for anybody. In fact, if that standing water sits long enough, it just picks up whatever comes around. You ever come across standing water with mosquitoes inside of it? I mean, it's disgusting. Not only that, you can't even feed it to the cat. It's got all that bacteria in it. It hurts whoever it is that comes near it. You can't even dump standing water on a plant because it's got too much junk in it. Now listen to me. With David, he doesn't stay back to rest. He's idle. He should be somewhere else. And he has chosen to stay in neutral with a big old void on where he should have gone. It begs this question. Is it time you headed where you're supposed to be? Is it time you headed where you're supposed to be? Sometimes idleness is something where we leave a void in our schedule. And sometimes idleness or neutral is when we choose to be someone's passenger and we give up the right to be in drive in our lives. Now, just for the record, any business that you work for, any government organization or entity you work for, is going to have some levels where you are in submission to those who are in authority over you. But you know when it's somebody who's not good and you step in their car and you become a passenger on their journey with them for better or for worse. This happened to me when I was younger. Some of you have heard this story before. It's one of my most shameful moments. I'll never forget. Um, my mom, there was a guy that I was not supposed to spend time with. Every time we hung out together, the police got called. Just every time. Just the way it works. And so um, he was never my first phone call. He was never my second phone call. Um, truthfully, he was never even my third or fourth phone call. But if I got really lonely, if I got really desperate, if I wanted to get out of the house... Then I would call him, and it really came to a head when I was 15 because he had a car, and I didn't. And so I remember um, that year, our, uh, our high school had made it to the state playoffs from playing in the quarterfinals in Abilene, Texas, about uh, two and a half, three hours from Lubbock. And uh, I remember I went out to the game, and while I was out at the game, um, this guy came up, and he goes, hey, he goes, my grandparents have a lake house and a jet ski. He said, they want to know if we'll stay with them and ride the jet ski. And here's the deal. I lived in an area of the country where there weren't even lakes or or rivers, okay? Lubbock, Texas is so dry. I'd never, I'd barely been in a boat, let alone a jet ski. And just the thought of being able to drive a jet ski, I thought was awesome. And so I remember my mom had said, you cannot stay with this guy. You cannot spend time with this guy. And so there were three of us and this guy that were going to go and do this. So I've got to call my mom. And I said, Mom, I said, I'm going over to a a friend's house. I said, his grandparents, they're very old, very feeble. I mean, they owned a jet ski, for crying out loud. They were not old and feeble. They're old, they're feeble. Uh, But they have this jet ski that they would like to let us ride. And she goes, well, who's going? And I said, well, such and such and such and such. 
and a few others, right? I conveniently left off and did not name this guy in particular because I knew if I said his name, mom would have said no. So then she goes, well, if you think it's safe, I trust you. That's the worst, isn't it? That's the worst, especially when you're trying to sneak something around, right? So at that point, I have the ability to go. We go to the lake. Jet ski was just as cool as I ever dreamed it would be. Had the best experience. And then after it was over, I had told the guys, I said, listen, you'll know I'm a Christian. I said, uh, I was so worried that, that, uh, that the guys were going to get drunk and try to drive and all that stuff. And so I remember just having the discussion saying, hey, just this can't even be an option. And so anyway... We go to the convenience store, and I told the guys, I said, hey, this has been great. Let me buy some hot dogs and some hamburger, or hot dogs and hot dog buns, and let's cook out on the lake. Well, sure enough, go in, and uh, while we're in, it's going fine. Um, the guys are not buying alcohol, which, again, made me feel safe. And I remember I'm walking back to the car. Here's the front of the, the convenience store facing this way in Breckenridge, Texas, facing this way. Some of y'all know Shelby. That's where Shelby's from. Breckenridge, Texas, and our car is here, and we're right by the door, I'm paying, about to walk out, and all of a sudden, this guy, who I wasn't supposed to spend time with, turns to walk out the door, and another guy walking in, who's drunk and just a little bit older than us, bumps him with his shoulder on the way in. The big problem that my friend had is he was a brawler, just who he was, and so that bump gave him license to all of a sudden start swinging at this guy in the middle of the convenience store. Well, at that point, me and the other guys get our stuff, go outside, and we're sitting in the car just waiting to leave. But our friend is still just yelling at him. They're barking, and you can tell again that the convenience store owner's calling the police. Well, at that point, we're in the car facing this way, and the other guy drove a Chevy Cavalier. He gets in his car. He's drunk, gets in his car, and he pulls up right behind, facing this way, right behind the car that me and those guys are in. Well, at that point, the guy turns to us in my car, turns to us and says, we're going to jump him. All four of us can take him. We can do this. And we're like, no, we're not going to do that. Just call the police and have them make him move. And at that point, I don't know what it is that just snapped, but here I am, a passenger in the car. I'm in neutral where someone else is in control. And all of a sudden, he hears the yelling, whips it into reverse, floors it, and slams into the Chevy Cavalier behind us. When he does that, he's wrecked his own car, and he's wrecked the Chevy Cavalier. But the Cavalier at that point, realizing there's four of us, one of him, and now it's been initiated, he starts driving as fast as he can down the two-lane highway there in Texas. He's taken off. Well, at that point, our guy whips into reverse, pulls out, floors it, spins his tires, and he starts driving down the two-lane road after him. And we're in the car going, oh my gosh. And I'm like, dear Lord Jesus, mom was right. Mom was right. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? We drive 100 miles an hour up against him. And I can feel the Spirit saying, just tell him to stop. Just tell him to pull over. Tell him to stop. But again, I'm just in such shock by what's taking place. And then finally, our guy says the magic words. He's right on his bumper. And he says, I'm going to ram him. That's what he says. At that point, praise God. I start yelling, if you don't pull over and let us out, I'm jumping out. And I don't know what it was. It clicks in his head. The other guys are saying the same thing. Clicks in his head. He pulls over and he stops. I mean, it was so frightening. We had no control. We were in neutral. 
I didn't do anything. I just sat there in the car, but I was a big enough fool. I went into the house of folly. I went into this house of avoidable mistakes and I put myself in this awful scenario. He decides he's got a, it's his parents' car and he's got to tell, he's got to file for insurance. So we go back to the convenience store and the whole way there, he's coaching us on the story that we need to tell the police when they show up. And again, I'm just sitting there going, this is awful. And the guys are talking it through. None of them want to do it, but he's pulling the strings. We all feel trapped. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there, and I remember being on the curb of the convenience store, and I'm holding my knees. And the police officer shows up. Most likely it was the sheriff I mean, for the whole town. There wasn't many officers there in Breckenridge, all right? He comes in. The officer walks up, sees the three guys. They start spinning their story, and there's me sitting on the corner. And I remember him going, hold on, boys. I want to talk to him. <laughs> Smart police officer. He walks over and he goes, you're going to tell me the truth, aren't you, son? I said, yes, sir, I am. <laughs> I told the whole story. I told the guys afterwards, I was like, were y'all mad at me? They were like, we knew that we were toast when he walked over to you. <laughs> I tell him what really happened. And at the end of the day, I mean, it just was what it was. I didn't have to go back and tell my mom and my dad what had really happened because I had been filed in a police report as giving a statement. <laughs> now, Listen. I share that story with you to say this. Rest is of God. We're going to talk about that in depth in a minute. Idleness is the devil's playground. Know the difference between the two. A car in park is resting and getting ready to go again. A car in neutral, a car in neutral can be shoved in whatever direction someone who's around it wants to shove it. You ever seen a dollar on the ground before? Let's up the ante. You seen a $100 bill on the ground before? You know who that $100 bill belongs to? Whoever picks it up first. I'm telling you, nobody looks on the ground and goes, a $100 bill, is this anyone's? I mean, a crowd of people, is this anyone's, right? Because if the person knew they were missing that thing, I mean, anybody's going to cry out. So guess what you do? Whoever it is that picks it up first, that's who gains control of it. For some of you, you are allowing whoever's close to dictate the course of your life. Stop it. Stop it. In David's case, he should have been at war he should have been with the men. He should have been fighting against the enemy of Israel that wanted to decimate the entire country, that wanted to destroy their entire culture. Instead, instead he was at the palace with a void. Now look at verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It says, one evening. I love that it's not a specific day. It's not a holiday. It's not a big moment. It's just one random evening. David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Underline, got up from his bed. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. Now stop right there for just a minute. David should be sleeping, and instead, he is restless. If you're taking notes, write this down. What should the godly remember so they don't end up in the house of folly? Number one, choose active righteousness over idleness. And number two, choose rest over restless wandering. Choose rest over restless wandering. 
Just for the record, restless wandering in our common culture is this. It's what you watch before you go to bed. Sometimes pornography, and sometimes Netflix has become your pornography. It's something that you watch where you go, it's 10 episodes. If I can just make it through three more hour and a half long episodes before I go to bed, then I'll be able to know what happens to that character that I won't care about a week from now. Now listen to me. You realize you are robbing the work the following day that you could be doing. If you're taking notes and you don't take anything else away from today, you ready for this? When it's bedtime, go to bed. When it's bedtime, go to bed. The stuff that we watch, the people that we call, the people that we text, the people that we Facebook stalk, or let's just talk government work here for just a minute. For some of you, your pornography are those articles that you read late at night that get you worked up and angry. They get you frustrated. And here's the deal. You think you're doing it for your job or for your work. If it was for your job or for your work, you'd do it first thing in the morning. That's when you read it, when your brain's firing on all cylinders. You know what happens when you read those angry government or policy articles while you're sitting in bed at night? You have nightmares. You can't go to sleep. You get worked up and you go, the world's falling apart. What am I going to do? I'm saying as one of you how it works. It steals your rest. And we find out in the passage of scripture we're about to read, God grants sleep to those he loves. It's a gift from him that we would have time to rest, that we would trust that he's the one who's governing the universe. I'm not telling you not to do your job, but do it on the clock right before bed. What is your flow? Is your flow right before you go to bed to ramp yourself up? I mean, it's no wonder you can't go to sleep. It's no wonder you can't find rest. It's no wonder you're having nightmares. Ramp it down, trust the Lord, and don't give up rest for restlessness. Let him have control. When it's bedtime, go to bed. I want to show you a little passage here. Flip over to Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful verses here. And I love, too, this is a psalm of Solomon. This is David's son by Bathsheba. Look at what he says. It says, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Now look at verse 2, the follow-up. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. Notice the context of Psalm 127, 1 and 2 from Solomon. The context is, if you're building a house, if you're doing something that eventually you're going to live in, all that hard work has gone into it. And at the end of the day, you have to be able to say, I'm going to sleep and I'm going to trust the Lord because at the end of the day, if he doesn't build it, it's not going to stand anyway. Not only that, many of you are the government watchmen that this passage is talking about. Unless the watchman stands guard with the Lord right beside them, all of what we do in this city is completely in vain. He then follows it up with verse 2 and says, And the Lord grants, the Lord grants sleep to those that he loves. That rest is a gift from you and it's a sign that God loves you and he's restoring you. We have to remember we can't do anything on our own that lasts. It begs the question, are you leaving yourself too many energy units at the end of the day? Are you leaving yourself too many energy units at the end of the day? For some of you, the trouble you get into is because of what we talked about before. It's this idleness. For others of you, can I just be honest? 
You're wasting time at work when you should be working. And then when you get to the end of the day, you got a few extra energy units and you steal from the next day. When we do that, it's a vicious cycle that takes place. It's why if you've ever watched a boxing match that went all the way to the final round. You ever watch that? Boxers understand energy units as good as any athlete on the planet. You got to make sure you got just a little bit left in the tank at the end, but you don't see a boxer in the last round throwing haymakers. You know why? Because I'm telling you, the last round, they're just lucky to be standing at the end of the last round. If you watch a boxing match, the last rounds, I mean, the punches look about like this at the end. It's why they always like throw their arms around each other. It's complete exhaustion because there's no energy units left by the end of the fight. For some of you, the answer to this problem might actually be to work a little harder during the day so that when your head hits the pillow, you go to sleep. You receive that joyful rest that God has given you. Don't leave yourself too much room for sin. Again, it begs the question, are you leaving yourself too many energy units at the end of the day? Little side note, you ever heard the saying before, nothing good happens after 2 a.m.? I want to adapt that. Some of you know nothing good happens after midnight. DC, nothing good happens after 10 p.m., all right? <laughs> Everything closes. Is that right, Jordan? Everything closes, right? Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. in the city because everybody's got to start at 6. It's just the way that it works. Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. If you're trying to ramp up, I'm telling you, you need to be ramping down. Now, there's some of you that work nights, and I'm telling you, you know what we're talking about in the schedule. Figure out a way to ramp down so that you can, as your head hits the pillow, go, God is on his throne. Lord, I'm turning over my watch to you. It's all yours. I'm turning over the building and the sustaining of my house to you. (sighs) You do that, I'm telling you, we feel the love of God when we rest. And now look at our last set of verses, and we'll call it a day. Now look at 2 Samuel 11, verses 3 through 5. Here's what it says next. Verse 3, it says, And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, "Uh, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now stop right there for just a minute. David knew who she was. He absolutely knew. He wanted to make sure. In fact, if you remember, Uriah and his family had been with David since the crags. He knew who Uriah was. And I love this response of his entourage member. The entourage member looks and goes, "Uh, David, I have no reason to question the king. I can't question your morality. I've watched the way that you've dealt in pride through this circumstance. Maybe it's just the way kings are supposed to behave. So he looks at him in the house and he goes, "Uh, are you sure this is Uriah? I mean, I realize you've taken all these wives. You've slept with all these concubines. You're supposed to be at war, but you're here instead. Maybe that's just what kings do. And so the entourage, because they've seen pride develop over time, they just look at him and they go, the guy looks and goes, "Uh, I just want you to know, who this is that you are thinking about taking into your life. This is someone who's already married. Just want to make sure you are aware of that. You're the king. It's your call. But I just want you to be aware of the boundary that you are crossing. Now look at what happens next. 
It says, verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. I want you to notice that this guy who asked the question doesn't stop him, but David goes, you know what? You seemed a little bit too negative on this decision. I'm the king, so I'll send somebody else to go get her. Look at what happens next. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now look at this, this parentheses. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Underline that for just a second. It says, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now stop here for just a minute. Why don't you read between the lines on something? She was bathing late at night. Can I tell you why late at night is important and what we find in verse 4 is important? In the ancient world, she had had her period and she was going through her period of uncleanliness. She takes the bath afterwards, what you do in the ancient world at the end of the day, and then all of a sudden you're purified and ready to move forward. The ancients are not as dumb as you perceive them to be. David makes a calculated decision here. He goes, she just finished her period. I see her down there. She just finished her period. If I sleep with her, there's a very low likelihood that she could get pregnant. That's the pride that David has drifted into. That he now is making the decision that he himself can make the decision on whether or not she gets pregnant or not. The foolishness of man, the Lord is still the one who builds the house, and the Lord is still the one who watches over the city. So he's got all these people around him. The entourage. And can I tell you what's interesting about the entourage? They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Because you are their drug dealer. You are their key into the palace. And because of that, they'll call you on issues of policy, but they will not call you on issues of morality. You ever had this before? Someone at work, and they share a cubicle where they're across the way from you, and they get into some big moral hazard or moral trouble. What do you do? You sit there and you go, it's not my place to say anything. You ever done that with somebody? It's not my place to say anything. If you know they're headed for destruction... Why is it not your place to say anything? Can I tell you why? Because they are right across from you. Because you'll see them again. Because you interact with them on so many different areas. If it's a policy issue, you'll stand up to them on that. But if it's a moral issue, it's not my place to say anything. Now, I want you to go on the other side. Know why your coworkers, your neighbors, your roommates don't call you out on moral failings. Because it's not their place to say something. You do the same thing with you that you do with them. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What should the godly remember so they don't end up in the house of folly? Number one, choose active righteousness over idleness. Number two, choose rest over restless wandering. And number three, choose wise counsel over the indifference of the entourage. Choose wise counsel over the indifference of the entourage. For the entourage... You're in neutral, and they are the closest thing for you to be able to grab. If your closest confidant is the person who sits closest to you at work, I might be real careful about what I tell that person moving forward. If your closest confidant is a stranger that you meet at the bar, you might be stuck in this pattern of sin. If your closest confidant is your next-door neighbor, I want to encourage you. You're grabbing at proximity and not in people who deserve to be speaking truth and wise counsel that deserve to be speaking into your life. Don't miss this. 
best example of this in Scripture is Moses and Jethro. Remember the story of Moses? There is no one who had more respect in Israel in its history than Moses. Moses is the one that the Lord uses as the tip of the staff to lead the people out of bondage. They were in slavery until they meet Moses. The Lord is the one who does it, but Moses is the one that the Lord does it through. He does these 10 plagues. I'm telling you, he marches out without a swing of the sword for them to be able to walk out of Egypt and to be set free. Here's the deal. In Exodus chapter 17 and 16, man, Moses is the one that when he speaks, the water comes from the rock to nourish all the people. Manna comes comes from heaven, then bread falls from heaven. I mean, I'm telling you, it's just amazing. Moses is the one, the entire nation of Israel was his entourage. There's no one in its history who could do what Moses had done. And so guess what happens? The nation has trouble with its infrastructure, but nobody can speak to it. They're all his entourage. And then all of a sudden, Jethro, his father-in-law, comes in from the outside to see it for the first time. Do you remember the story? Exodus 18, Jethro walks in and he sees Moses. And Moses goes, look, Jethro, look at what Yahweh has done. He set these people free. Look at what Yahweh has done. He tells him the story of the 10 plagues. Look at what Yahweh has done. That water that springs from the rock, God provides it each day. Man, do you see the manna that's fallen from heaven? God provides it each day for our sustenance and our nourishment. And Jethro goes, son, I'm so proud of you. Can I speak to you in the tent off to the side just for a minute? They walk off to the side and Jethro goes, son, what you're doing is not good. I guarantee you, Moses bowed. What do you mean it's not good? What do you mean it's not good? God's never blessed like this before. I'm the founder of a nation. And Jethro goes, I know, son, and I'm so proud of you. But they're all coming to you. You need to delegate. You need to spread it out. You want this to outlast you, don't you? You want them to look to Yahweh for their guidance, not just you, don't you? And Moses, because no one in the entourage can say it for him to hear it. But Jethro, Jethro speaks it. Moses receives it and everything changes. He walks outside. I love it because Jethro doesn't call him out publicly. It's in the tent. Do you have those people in your life? It's not the person who sits next to you in the cubicle. It's not the goes to lunch with you in the lunchroom. It's not the next door neighbor. Who is it that when you speak to them, they tell you the truth? Now, just for the record, there have been times in my life when as I consider that, I can't think of anyone sitting in that seat. If that's you today, that is a very dangerous place to be. Some of the worst decisions I've ever made in my entire life are when I could not think of who Jethro was in my life. Some of you might even say, well, they just don't understand. There's no one who understands. One final verse and we'll close today. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. If you're the type of person that likes to take a dry erase marker and write verses on your mirror... In your bathroom, this is one worth writing down. Proverbs 18, 24 says this. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want you to notice the promise of Proverbs 18. If you're the one who feels like you're the lone ranger, there is a friend out there for you. You just have to find them.
pray that God would lead them to you, but you just have to find them. Dig deep. And you know what I found in my life? They were people from my distant past, people who truly knew me as Zach Randall's. Not who it is that the Lord is forming me into today, but truly who understand those root sins that I've struggled with since I was 13 years old. Those root sins that I struggled with when I was 20. Those root sins that I struggled with through my 30s. And now I got a whole new set of sins I struggle with at 40. One of my dearest friends is a guy named Nolan Frederick. Nolan planted a church in Artesia, New Mexico. And Nolan tells me the truth. When I call him, he's Jethro. One of my dad's dearest friends, a guy named Greg Wallace. When I call Greg Wallace, Greg told me this when dad died. He said, I will always answer your call. He said, I'll try to get it on the first ring every time. And he does. Greg's in his 70s, planted a church that lasted for more than 40 years before he passed it off. For Greg, when I call Greg, I got to be prepared. He doesn't just tell me, good job, young man, keep running. With Greg, there's always a critique that comes in. And it's like manna from heaven for my soul. Do you have those people in your life? And if you can't think of one, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I want to encourage you to find him. It begs the final question today. Has your life become void of wise counsel? Has your life become void of wise counsel? I want to close today with good news. David screwed up royally. He's about to make it even worse. We'll study that next week. But can I tell you what happens with David? The Lord gets a hold of him. He rides the ship. And the end of David's story is beautiful. If you have already gone into the house of folly. And it's time for you to leave. You need to know there will be consequences but it can still be good, really good, if you trust the Lord. <sighs> We're already 15 minutes over, and y'all stood outside for an extra seven minutes today. I'm very, very grateful. <laughs> Don't tune out. The most important part of the service these next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection nothing mystical or magical about this time just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung the sermon we've heard and specifically the scripture that we've read with nobody looking around but just me is there anyone here today that would say zach would you pray for me honestly it's time i headed to where i was supposed to be there's a void in my life and it's truly become a standing water pit of filth. And it's time I got to where I was supposed to go. Remember, there's a huge difference between standing water and still water. Still water is restful. Standing water is disgusting. With nobody looking but just me, is there anyone here that would say, Zach, pray for me. It's time I got to where I was supposed to be. I need to get moving again. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you for that. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to encourage you. Take just a minute and just say this simple prayer. Lord, I pray that you would remove the void of idleness. Lord, I pray that you would remove the void of idleness. Help me to start moving again. 
Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Honestly, I'm the one who is on my bed at night, but I start ramping things up and it ends up robbing from the following day. We've all been there. Netflix has done it to all of us. We've all been there with nobody looking but just me. Is there anyone here that would say, Zach, pray for me? Honestly, I need to make sure that I'm out of energy units at the end of the day. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. If you just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. Every service, it was about half the room on that one. This is a constant struggle for a culture where we're plugged in all the time. I want to encourage you. Find ways to ramp down. And for you, maybe your prayer is just very simple. Lord, when it's bedtime, help me to go to bed. Lord, when it's bedtime, help me to go to bed. Pray that simple prayer. You'd be shocked at how much good God could do with that extra energy for the following day. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? My life has become void of wise counsel and I need it, Jethro. With nobody looking but just me, it is not that coworker. It is not that next door neighbor. It's not that person in close proximity. Find someone who truly knows you, who knows the Lord, and who cares for you. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. I need to set up a visit with some truly wise counsel. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are at this time of commitment. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. So many of you. I want to encourage you, before the sun goes down tonight, send an email, send a text, and set up a time to meet with that person. Because they truly care for you, I can promise you they're going to respond. Reach out. And then listen to the truth that they speak. Moses doesn't blow off his father-in-law. Moses receives it, and the nation of Israel is better because of it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance we've had to...